She's in my life because she makes me happier, but I don't need her. So to me, love means you are with that person because you choose to be with that person, not because you need that person, or in many cases, in terms of marriage, you feel like you must be with that person. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hello, friends. Happy New Year. Hope you're doing really well. Nice to be speaking to you again. Nice to be recording a podcast again. I know it's been a while. I just checked and my last podcast came out in October, which is a little embarrassing, truth be told, but thank you for being so patient with me. The truth of it is, I've been more focused on YouTubing lately. And anyone who's followed my YouTube channel, if you just Google my name, Zachary Stockhill, or should I say YouTube my name, Zachary Stockhill, it'll come right up. I've been putting out weekly YouTube videos, two or three videos a week, on many topics relating to relationships, jealousy, retroactive jealousy, all of that good stuff. So to be perfectly honest with you, I've been focusing less on the podcast. However, I have no intentions of stopping this podcast. In fact, I have been thinking about starting to do more solo episodes and speaking about various subjects in greater depth at greater length than I'm able to on the YouTube channel. So stay tuned for that. If you like that idea, please be sure to send an email and let me know. I always really appreciate hearing from you guys. And you know when you let me know what you like and what you don't about my work in general or the podcast. My guest today is a returning guest to the show, really interesting cat, a guy who is sure to spark some controversy, I'm sure. His name is Mr. Caleb Jones. He has a YouTube channel called Alpha Male 2.0. He's an author, he's a speaker, he's a business consultant, does a lot of really interesting work around men's personal development, open marriages, and in particular, location-independent business advice. Really enjoyed the last time I spoke with Caleb. I think that a lot of his stuff is really interesting and really thought-provoking. And in some ways, I even hesitate saying this because I think this is kind of self-evident, but for people who might not take it to be self-evident, I don't agree with everything this guy says. But the thing is, I don't agree with everything anyone says. So just kind of bear that in mind if you're listening to this and you have a strong reaction to it. Nothing wrong with that. I want this podcast to be a venue for unconventional conversations, unconventional discussions, thought-provoking topics. And yeah, I'm not going to shy away from people, topics, speakers, interviewees who might be quote-unquote controversial. In fact, those are often my favorite discussions with people on this podcast. I'm not going to do any more preamble today other than to wish you a very happy new year, to hope that you're as excited about 2021 as I am, and to introduce my guest for episode 50 of Humans in Love, Mr. Caleb Jones. Okay, Caleb Jones, once again, man, thank you for making time for me. Thanks for coming back to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Very, very welcome. It's fun to talk to you last time. Great. So we're meeting today at the end of December 2020. You've put out a ton of content on this topic this year, uh, just about, you know, the corona madness and what a weird year it's been for the planet. And I just told you that I'm about to do my yearly plan and I'm planning with coronavirus in mind now, which a year ago we both you and I didn't do. But it's been such a bizarre year for so many people. This is a, a big question, but I'm, I'm really curious, like, what are your main lessons or takeaways from this weird year that we've had? Like, how, what did this year teach you? Teach me, <coughs> excuse me, what did it teach Or perhaps me? reinforce to you. It was mostly a reinforcing year for me. And the reason for that is I learned these lessons that most people are learning this year back in 2008. So 2008 was the year when that crash occurred. That was the year where I had to learn some new things. That year really smacked me in the face mostly financially. Um, So from that year is when I said, okay, this is never happening to me again, because we have these crises approximately once every 10 years or so. 
So I am never going through this again. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the next time this happens, I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to be fine. And if I have to bust my ass for several years to make sure this never happens again, I'm going to do that. And that's kind of what I did. So this year has been a very good year for me. Now, it's not as good as I wanted it to be when I was planning. When I was doing yearly planning last December of 2019, obviously, like you just said, I had no idea this was going to happen. So I set some big goals for this year. So the big goals didn't happen, but I still did very well this year across the board in all my the financial areas that I find important. Um, the one thing I did learn, I did learn something this year. The one thing I learned is that I focus a lot on having a, an emergency savings buffer at all times. And I had a personal savings buffer. I did not have a business savings buffer. And the reason for that is, and I've talked about this in some of my videos, I expanded massively in the last year and a half. So a year and a half ago, I had about, I want to say four people on my staff, four or five. I now have 18. So I went from four to 18, which means I have a lot more business infrastructure now than I did a year and a half ago. And, and this year taught me, I need to make sure that those expenses are also covered in my buffer savings. So now I have a combined personal slash business buffer savings for the future, again, for the future. So now that way I don't have to worry about, um, I don't want to mention names, but various people on the internet, various people in, in terms of people I know, business owners who had to lay off a lot of people. As soon as Corona hit, they had to lay off a third of their company or lay off 10, 20 people. I didn't have to do that because I had a buffer savings. And if this happened, if not if, when this happens again, I'm really not gonna have to do that. I was actually reading a few weeks ago, two months ago, about how when Bill Gates was running Microsoft, he mandated that Microsoft at all times carry an entire year of expenses in the bank. And if you can imagine how much that would be for a company the size of Microsoft that it's height. So he said, and a lot of people gave him shit about it. He goes, nope, nope. That way, no matter what happens in the economy, we have a year to figure it out. We have a year. We don't have to fire or lay off anybody for a year. We can continue our key projects for an entire year. And I really got excited about that. So now I have not only a personal buffer, but also a business buffer. But that was the only thing I learned. In terms of everything else, it was a good way for me to yell at my audience or certain people in my audience to say, hey, I've been telling you guys to make sure to have an emergency savings. Now you know why. This year, for those of you who didn't do that, going over my content the last five to 10 years, if you never did that and you got swacked this year, now you know what? You need to have an emergency buffer at all times. When you're doing well is when you put aside money. And even if you're not doing well, you should put aside some money if you don't have a designated chunk of emergency savings set aside. It's huge. That's the big thing. Absolutely. I mean, the number of people living paycheck to paycheck is absolutely astonishing to me. And just the, 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 the amount of stress that must bring to their lives. This is not to say that, you know, the economy is always great and it's always easy to save and the cost of living is very high. I understand that, right. but I can't imagine how stressful it must be to be living that, you know, just barely getting by and buying everything on credit and incurring a ma massive amounts of debt. Like right. to, to me, nothing is worth that amount of stress. Correct. And, and to that point, a lot of people in the last, you know, 10-ish years have been doing okay. A lot of people haven't, but a lot of people have. And I personally know, I don't know if you know people like this, I certainly do. People who, excuse me, in the last, you know, eight to 10 years have been doing fine and still didn't put any money away, still didn't really focus on paying off debt. They just kind of went, okay, cool, I'm good, I'm great, Chris is fine. It's, it's yeah. super dangerous. It's also Absolutely. kind of an American thing. Uh, the Asians don't have this problem. They save, they're good savers. It's Americans, Europeans are even less bad at this than Americans are. So yeah, it's there, a lot of our cultural conditioning as Americans are party when it's good and, and buy stuff and keep up with the Joneses and all that good stuff. It's very keep dangerous up with the Joneses. to do that. What's that? Keep up with the Joneses. Right. Keep up with guys like me, which is, which is kind of stupid because I'm almost minimalist. But yeah, I mean, not so minimalist as I used to be, but correct. And uh, what was I going to say? It, um, regardless of how well or how poorly you're doing, unless you're doing really poorly, you can always put away something. Mm. And once you get to the point where you have, I recommend six to 12 months of emergency savings for most Westerners, six months is fine. And that's not taxes, that's after tax expenses. So it's not as much as you think. Once you have that in place and you have no debt, then go ahead, go ahead and, and go crazy and spend your money and have fun, that's fine. But if you're not there yet, that should be your focus for times like this. What about your relationship life? Did you learn any kind of woman lessons or relationship lessons this year? I know you're in an open marriage with the lovely pink firefly. Were there any lessons or reinforcements in your woman life this year? Did coronavirus kind of stress test your marriage to some extent? 
Uh, it did not stress test my marriage. Um, we, let's see, we've been married now for three years. We're coming up on our three-year marriage anniversary. I consider marriage beginning as soon as you move in together. And so we moved in together three years ago on December 31st. So in about a week or two. Um, no, this has been a, a fantastic year for my marriage. Um, it's, it's better than I thought it would be. And I had very high expectations for it. We went through a lot of that, not trials and tribulations, I don't want to say that, but a lot of the adjustment period during the first year and two, year or two of living together, we're past all that now. So by the time Corona hit, we were solid. So no, our marriage has been um, not only fantastic, better than I was expecting. And I'm, I'm surprised at how good it's been. So no, it's been fine there. Uh, my woman life is great and has been great this year. The, the thing I learned, maybe again reinforced, is that, and this isn't politically correct to say in some circles, but it's a fact. I saw this this year, and a lot of people in my audience, a lot of guys in my audience uh, um, experienced the same thing. In times of crisis, men, excuse me, in times of crisis, women tend to cling to men a little more and reach out to men a little more. <clears throat> so for the first time this year, I had numerous women from my past over the last, I'm doing this for 13 years now, numerous women, including women I had talked to in 10 plus years, all of a sudden, out of the blue, reach out to me. Hey, Caleb, how you doing? On Facebook, on texts, through social media, personal social media, things like that. And I'm not talking about sugar daddy, sugar baby stuff. Normal FBs, MLTRs, women I was dating under normal conditions, reach out to me out of the blue. In addition to women I've seen recently last few years. More, that, more than that this year than in any other year that I can remember in the last several years. So certainly, and um, retention. I talk a lot about Women date you for a while under a non-monogamous conditions, and then they get a boyfriend, and then they, they go away for a while, and then they come back. And so retention has been much better this year. So a lot of women coming back this year, and a lot a much higher degree of retention because of these problems. And actually, this is borne out in the statistics. So if you look at things like breakup statistics and divorce statistics, when times are bad, the divorce rate drops, and the boyfriend-girlfriend breakup rate in terms of uh, people who live together, that also drops. Well, why is that? Because if you look at the stats, I've talked about this before, when divorces occur, the vast majority of divorces, 80, 80, 70 to 80%, depending on the, the stats you look at, are initiated by the woman. And approximately 75% of all girlfriend boyfriend relationships are, are initiated, the, the breakups are initiated by the woman. So when times are good, women feel more confident to go out in the world by themselves and replace men and, you know, or, or go off on their own and do their own thing. When times are bad, they don't like doing that as much. So retention grows for everybody, including normal guys and normal monogamous relationships or marriages when times are bad. So I saw a lot of that this year. It didn't surprise me. It just, it, I guess it did surprise me a little bit because I haven't had a year like that in a long time. I have women come back all the time, but this was an unusual year for that. I went, oh yeah, that's right. Of course. That makes sense. Of course. This is, this is stuff that I've talked about before. So yeah. But beyond that, nothing brand new. No, just more reinforcement for me this year. I'd like to talk a little about, about um, politics. And I know, you, I know you don't like talking politics, so just let me, let me finish. But, That's fine. you know, in the past, uh, I read your blog and you'd write about libertarianism and personal responsibility. And it seems to me that over the past several years, you've spent less and less and less time focused on politics, focused on the news, focused on, you know, uh, current events. And I followed a, a similar trajectory in my own media diet, in my own output of actually what I'm writing about and thinking about. And I found that the less and less I focus on current events, politics, even though I am a political junkie and it's like a spectator sport for me, I do enjoy the, the specter, particularly of American uh, federal politics. But the less that I focus on that, the better my life is. And the more time I have to devote to pursuits that actually make an impact in my life and that actually benefit me and the people I care about. There's a, a phrase I really like from the Buddhist teacher, Jack Cornfield, who advises people to tend to the part of the garden they can touch. Actually, you know, focus your efforts where it actually can make a difference. Exactly. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your evolution in terms of paying attention to politics, paying attention to the news and where you're at regarding that uh, right now. Um, the amount of time that I personally spend watching political stuff hasn't changed that much because it's never been extreme to begin with. I always keep an eye on it. And the, and the reason primarily I keep an eye on these things is not for political reasons, but for financial reasons. So I'm an investor. 
and I do business internationally all over the world. So unfortunately, I have to pay attention to these things. I have to know who likely the president will be in the United States, what the Congress is doing in the United States, what, what the politics are, what, what are, what's going on over in Europe, things like that. I have to, unfortunately, I have to be somewhat aware of these things just because I'm an investor and I own companies all over the world, or I do business all over the world. Um, so that's why. So the amount of time that I've spent personally paying attention to politics hasn't changed. The amount of time, as you mentioned, of me discussing politics has gone way down uh, for two reasons. Reason number one is, again, financial. Um, I can tell you for a fact that when I discuss political topics on like a blog, for example, and I've talked to peripherally other guys who have big blogs, smaller blogs than me, bigger blogs than me, and they've reflected similar, similar results with this. When you talk about politics, you get a lot of engagement. You get a lot of comments and a lot of people read your stuff and nobody buys anything. So I'm here to, I run a business. I'm here to make money. I've been very clear about that. So um, when I talk about business topics, it's the exact opposite. People read the article, no one comments. I get zero comments, maybe two or three, but a lot of people buy stuff and I make money. When I talk about relationship or dating topics, it's about halfway between those two extremes. I get some engagement and some people buy stuff. So I'm a businessman. I'm looking at, well, if I spend all this time and effort responding to political comments and discussing political topics on my blogs and I'm not making any money, what am I doing here? So that was reason number one. Reason number two is I have found definitively now in the past, certainly over the past five to 10 years, particularly with Americans, because the Americans are unfortunately the worst at this, um, but other Westerners are pretty bad at this too, Canadians, Europeans, et cetera. Um, you can't change anyone's mind with politics. Absolutely. So you could take, you just, you can't anymore. You could take a hardcore left-wing person or a hardcore Trump supporter. You can show them fact, 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 fact. And they'll say, F you, I don't care. You're a racist or you're a cuck or what have you. And I'm exaggerating, but you're not going to change anyone's mind if you show them facts. Now, this is different than 25 years ago. I was much more politically active in the 90s with libertarian stuff. And you could, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, sit down, particularly with a conservative, and lay out the facts, and the person would go, oh, okay, damn, that kind of makes sense. That's why you had guys like Ross Perot back in the early 90s get 19% of the vote, even though he wasn't a Democrat and he wasn't a Republican. That would never happen today. No one is interested in the facts. They're interested in being angry and the feels. And so again, why am I spending time discussing these topics libertarianism, small government, which in my opinion is the least bad political philosophy. Minarchist libertarianism, in my opinion, everyone has different opinions, is the least bad political philosophy in terms of the typical modern, typical average guy. Um, why would I spend my time doing this if no one or, or virtually no one is going to change their mind? There's, it, we're wasting, on top of the fact that I'm not making any money. So now I'm wasting my time and I'm wasting other people's time. It, people mostly want to reinforce their beliefs, not get the facts and make decisions based on what's happening in the real world, unfortunately. And it's getting worse, not getting better. So there you go. That's why. So it's not really a difference in me in terms of consuming political content. There is a big difference in me discussing political content for those two reasons. And, and by the way, really quick, I've, I, there's a percentage of my audience that doesn't like that. They're like, but I want to talk about politics. I like arguing about this. I like watching people argue about politics on your blogs, Caleb. Yeah, it's entertaining. It is very entertaining. The entire 2016 election. But Trump was extremely entertaining. Didn't fix anything. As I said, it wouldn't. But it's fun. But again, I have to, I have to make a judgment call where I spend my time. Absolutely. It, it always just blows my mind. You know, so I, I have extremely limited social media time. I, I really limit my time on social media. If I go but, into Facebook, I don't have Facebook on my phone. If I go into my desktop and bring up Facebook for whatever reason, there's a Chrome extension that blocks my newsfeed. I just don't engage at right. all. And I'm watching these people, occasionally I'll get curious, I'll go into someone's page and I'll watch these people engaging in these, you know, dozens of comments long political back and forth uh, constantly. And I'm thinking the time that these people are investing in this and to what end, what is this actually accomplishing? What could, else could it's you fun. be doing with this time? It's fun is to it be fun? angry. <laughs> I guess. It's not in my opinion, but you and I are the exception. Um, I think it was Joe Rogan, someone recently on the internet, someone big, I forget who this was made that observation. It's fun to be angry about things. And with most personalities, that's kind of true. 
Um, and I go back to the standard, my standard line is, and, and I teach alpha male 2.0, so I have very specific parameters about this. If you are making at least $75,000 a year with location independent income before taxes, and you are having sex as a man, you're having sex with at least two women who you find attractive on a regular basis with little drama. If you've got those two things in place, and let's throw a third one in there, you're reasonably healthy, you're physically healthy, certainly if you're over the age 35, you're healthy, then go ahead, waste all the time you want bitching about politics and bitching about things that are literally never going to change. That's fine. The problem with what you're describing, in my opinion, is the vast majority of those people you're seeing, and I see the same people too, the vast majority of those people don't have either one of those things in place. So instead of focusing on building these lifestyle structures, which they should be doing, which is what they should be doing, they're focused on bitching about politics, which isn't going to help them at all, other than make them more angry. And you could argue less able emotionally to take the action on these things to get these things done, which is really mm -hmm. bad. Yeah. Yeah. And just the, it amazes me the extent to which people are threatened by contrary opinions, or they have all these really strong reactions to contrary opinions. For example, you know, you know that I'm a big fan of yours. I absorb a lot of your content. I've read your books. Right now, I'm in a monogamous relationship. I am in no way threatened by the what you say about monogamy not working or this or that. Or, and I've been in different relationship configurations over the years. But that's what I'm doing right now. Does that mean that I have to write off all of your business advice, all of your lifestyle advice? Absolutely not. All these people, I just, anyway, this is a, I don't mean to get into ranting territory here, but no, it always I, blows I, me away. I agree with everything you're saying. I agree with you. Yeah, it just blows I mean, me away the extent to which people, you know, have to throw out the entire person rather than just absorbing what works for them, like take the best and leave the rest kind of thing. And if someone disagrees with me, I don't care. Like, what's the point of arguing and fighting and wasting my time? Absolutely. Exactly. I, I'm a libertarian, which means I wouldn't be able to have any friends or work with anyone or date literally anyone if I had that. <laughs> yeah, you're dealing with what, literally, around 0.5% no of the population? Universe. Right. It's 2%, 1% at best. I mean, it used to be 3 or 4% pre-Trump. Now it's probably less than 1%. I would have to be a hermit if I followed the viewpoint of, you have to agree with my political views or else F you. It's not yeah. possible. Yeah. I mean, it's also, not only is it a stupid thing emotionally, logistically, it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And I have, there are guys now, guys who I respect, guys who I think are very intelligent on the right side, on the Trump side, watching some of the YouTube videos about, you know what, that's it, guys. We need to stop doing all business with anyone who votes for a Democrat. These people are destroying our country. We need to be insular and, okay. I mean, I've solved that problem a long time ago. I'm moving out of the United States in about a month and a half. But even if I wasn't, I still wouldn't have that view. I mean, it's not a, a logistically workable view in terms of the long-term aspects of your life. It's not. Yeah. It might feel good emotionally, but it's not gonna work. Absolutely. Well. Branching off what you just said, um, I've been aware that you, you're leaving the country, you're, you're moving abroad, you're, you'll be an American expat soon. And I know a lot of what went into your decision because you, you've talked a lot about it, but you said something very interesting about this. I, I can't recall if it was in one of your videos or one of your podcasts, when you said that when you used to tell people that you were leaving America, they'd say, why the hell are you doing that? You know, are you crazy? It's dangerous, <laughs> you're yeah. gonna die. And yeah. in recent years, people say, oh, that's really cool, where are you going? Very interesting, and in some ways, kind of a depressing shift there. Very um, sad. Maybe you, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and offer some thoughts in terms of what you know led you to this decision. Was 2020 kind of the straw that broke the camel's back when it came to making this decision? No. So um, to your point really quick, to be specific about what I said, I remember what I said, yeah, and it was a very clear observation. Um, I, I was thinking about doing this started in 2003. So I've been thinking about this for about 17-ish years actively started working on it around 2011-ish. Uh, the issue was that I have children and I want to make sure my, my kids were grown up and stable before I left the country. And now they are, they're in their twenties now. Um, but yes, prior to 2016, and that was the year that I noticed the difference was I would, when I would mention this in passing with clients and people like that, the answer was um, surprise. What? Why? It was, that was usually the, the overall response. Why would you, well, why would you do such a strange thing? Why would you move from this country? What an extreme thing to do. And since 2016-ish, the answer now is, really? Where are you going? It's, it's, a, it's done a complete 180. Um, in terms of my decisions on doing this, so I just did a video about this a little while ago, um, but I'll summarize. So 2003, I saw the writing on the wall. I was married. 
to my first wife a billion years ago. And that's where I started making plans. And I was literally saying, literally, I think in about 20 years, this isn't going to be a great place to live. And now kind of here we are. Um, and then so was, I made plans, specific plans starting in 2011. And the objective was to move out by 2025. That was the plan I had for many, many, many years. Then around 2000, I want to say 18, I think that was it. A number of things occurred. One of the things that occurred was Trump's Muslim travel ban, where he signed a, pe a piece of paper banning travel from like nine different countries. And I don't know if you remember this, but for several weeks, he instantly paralyzed all the airports in the United States. There were mm -hmm. thousands of people mobbing the airports. The airports were, snar were snarled because as typical, as usual, the government didn't think this through. And they went, oh, oh, okay, I guess, okay, we'll let you in and we'll let you in, and, but not you. And I went, my God. If one dumbass can sign a piece of paper and limit my ability to legally travel, because they were blocking legal residents, people who had lived here 10 years, who were not citizens, but were legal residents. Uh, matter of fact, my girlfriend before Pink Firefly, before my wife, was a non-citizen legal resident in the United States. And we went to Canada one time. We came back over the border, crossing into Canada, no problem. Coming back, I got right through. They stopped her and they pulled her into an office and they interrogated her. She's this little Asian girl. They interrogated her for about a half an hour and she was terrified. She, they almost didn't let her back in the country, a legal resident. And that was the straw broke the camel's back in terms of the 20, 2025 timeframe. So I said, okay, I am not waiting to 2025. If it's getting that bad that fast, it's going to get a lot worse before. It's going to get much worse faster than I think. So I changed that to 2021, which is in a few days. <laughs> so February 8th of 2021 is when I leave. And I'm super excited. It's like being a, I was just talking to someone about this the other day. It's like the, the feeling I have is similar to being a senior in high school. And it's less than a month before the year end, before the end of the school year. And you're sitting there looking at that clock, waiting for three o'clock every day to get out of school because you, I wanted to leave school so bad because I wanted to make, I wanted to get a job and make money. And I was, I remember being so antsy and so excited. That's the feeling I have right now. I got about 45 days. Interesting. Yeah. yeah I've, I've been an expat for most of my adult life, actually. I'll Love be really it. curious uh, over the next few years to hear about it, whether or not you have the same experience. Counterintuitively, actually, the, the longer I stay away, I'm Canadian. So the longer I stay away from Canada, the more appreciative I am of certain elements of Canadian culture. Now, the, obviously, yeah. this is to be expected to some extent. And I enjoy my time in Canada so much more when I do go back. So I'll be curious to hear if you have that same experience. I know you've been traveling abroad for, for many years, but yes. yeah, something changes in you. I'm not sure if it's you're looking back through rose-colored glasses or, or whatnot, but I appreciate Canada more now than when I lived in Canada, if that makes sense. That's why I'm going to have a flag in Scottsdale, Arizona. Mm. So I come back, um, let's see, May, June. Come back in June, get a place in Scottsdale a place to stay and, and, and hang out and visit and a base for when I hang out in America. Cause I'm not, I can't cut off American ties completely. I have family here and friends and clients and right. So that's why I'm doing that to not just go cold Turkey. I think that's not smart emotionally. Mm -hmm. Right. I agree. Yeah. yeah I'm not Absolutely. surprised at all if that happens to me too. Sure. Question I have for you and a, and a concept I'd love for you to talk more about and share with my audience that is somewhat inflammatory on its face, rational selfishness. Mm -hmm. What is rational selfishness and why is this good for other people? All human action is selfish. So you have to start there. So if I donate, and I do, if I donate money to charity, I do every month. This is an example, an easy example. There, you give you lots of examples. The reason I donate to charity, why do I donate to charity? Is it because I am a, a left-wing person and I feel guilty that I'm a high-income guy and that I don't deserve this money and I've done something bad to make this money because capitalism is evil, so I better give back to my... No. Is it because I'm a more right-wing or Christian-based guy and I believe that God is owns the money and I am but a steward of the money and God really... I have to give 10% back to God? No. The reason I donate to charity every month, I do it every month, even on months that are tough for me, I still do it, is because it makes me feel good. And it is part of my mission and it is part of my objectives and is part of my, my emotional goals and my spiritual objectives as well. So I do it for selfish reasons. Mother Teresa was selfish. She did those things. She helped those people because that's what she wanted to do. And if you ever say, why? Well, no, 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 I don't do this for me. I do this for my kids or I do this for the poor or I do this for whatever. If you ask why, 
enough times. Why this? Why that? Eventually you get to it because it makes me feel good. I think Tony Robbins observed this, you know, 30 years ago. So all human action is selfish. The only issue is whether or not it's rational selfishness or irrational selfishness. So irrational selfishness would be, I need a hundred bucks. I go up to someone on the street. I punch him in the face. I grab his wallet. I rip a hundred dollars out of his wallet. I run away. I'm selfish and I'm being irrationally selfish because that action is going to cause a chain of events that's going to make me less happy in the long term. Rational selfishness would be, I want to play a video game and it's maybe Sunday afternoon. It's my day off. And my wife wants to, wants her to help me. I just helped her build some of these clothes racks, those things you have at Nordstrom's with the wheels you hang the, the girls clothing on. Can you help me build my clothing rack? I want to play a video game, but no, I'm going to stop. I'm going to go help her. I'm doing that because I'm being selfish. I want a very high quality, low drama, wonderful, non-monogamous, long-term marriage. Ideally, the rest of my life, I could do it with my wife. So in order to accomplish that objective, I'm going to be selfish by helping her. So in both cases, I'm being selfish, but in one case, I'm being rationally selfish. In that case, I'm being irrationally selfish. So that's the, it's not whether or not action is selfish. It's whether or not you're being rational or irrational. And my definition for those things is, if I take rational action, either nothing bad happens or my life improves. My happiness improves long-term. If I take irrational action or wrong action, can they talk about right and wrong action? That means that right now I might get what I want, but later I'm going to feel less happy. I can't have that. Right. That's it. Right. Uh, when I'm preparing for this interview, one, one thing I was thinking a lot about is, so you're very open and, and very forthright with your relationship history, with your dating history, with your marriage history, which, which I really appreciate. And one thing I was wondering about, and I realize this is probably a big, big question, but I'm curious about the ways you are in your relationship now, in your marriage now, differently than you were in your first marriage, aside from the aspect of monogamy versus non-monogamy. How do you show up in your marriage differently now compared to your previous marriage? Like, yeah, how, how, you know, just, yeah, what kind of a husband are you now compared to the husband you were before? Radically different. I'm the same guy, but in terms of husbandy, husbandry skills, that's an animal thing, right? Animal husbandry. In terms <laughs> of being a husband, <laughs> um, <laughs> radically different. So when I was a husband the first time, I got married when I was 25 years old, which is one of the dumbest things a man can do. Um, I was a kid. I was younger than my son is now, which makes me shudder. I was married and I had two kids pretty quickly. So I had a family of four by the time I was in my mid to late twenties and I didn't know what I was doing. I was a beta male. I was not super experienced with women. I wasn't inexperienced, but I wasn't experienced. I had never lived with the women before. I had never read any books on how to manage relationships. I tried to toward the end of the marriage. I got some marriage books, but it was way too late. So I didn't understand the dynamics of when you live full time with a woman, when you're in a romantic relationship with a woman, the ways in which men and women are radically different from each other in terms of communicating how they feel and what they want, and the ways in which you manage conflict and drama in a, both in a normal relationship and a live-in relationship. I didn't have any of those skill sets. And I just operated based on how most men operate. I just did a video about how men use logic when they have a an argument with a woman they're dating. They use logic and numbers and facts, and it just pisses women off when they're upset. That doesn't work. And I did that all the time in my marriage. And it just made my wife at the time furious. And my marriage got worse and worse and worse and worse. Today, I am much more conscious and I am much more strategic. Instead of focusing on being right all the time and focusing on winning the argument, I am focused on, I call it winning the, winning the war instead of winning the battle. So I have a book called The Ultimate Open Marriage Manual. And I talk about this a lot, but it's the difference between winning the battle, which is the argument or discussion you're having right now, and winning the war, meaning I have a long-term, low-drama, happy, non-monogamous marriage to my wife, who is the most wonderful woman I've ever met. And so my objective is having a great marriage, not being right, and not uh, trying to one-up, and not trying to, um, well, I could go on and on about that. But that's, I don't know if I answered your question. It's a big question. That's, that's my big, probably too broad answer, is it's radically different. I do everything consciously and strategically instead of just reacting to problems all the time, which is what most men and most women do when they live with somebody or even in a serious relationship when they're not living together. It's night and day. There's, there's almost no comparison between the two marriages. Maybe you can help me understand this better than just getting a little more specific. So you talk a lot about outcome independence, which is an idea I really, I really like and I've really tried to internalize uh, to a significant extent. 
maybe you could talk a little bit, and this is something that I'm not entirely clear on, the difference in your marriage, in the context of your marriage, the difference between being outcome independent and being a cold bastard, being a cold-hearted bastard. How can you be outcome independent in your marriage without making your partner feel alienated, hurt, etc.? So the way I define outcome independence is that you don't give a shit about the end result of the individual scenario you're involved in at the moment. So to use some easy examples, you're on a first date with a woman, you don't care at all how that first date ends up. You don't care because you know if it doesn't work out, you can schedule another first date with another woman. There are probably several hundred thousand, if not several million women in your city. So any one individual woman doesn't matter. Um, if you're on a sales call with a client or a new customer, or a new prospect, it doesn't matter what the result of that meeting is because if that doesn't work, you can find somebody else. You don't need one of anything. So in terms of a marriage, it's pretty much what I just said. I don't care about the day-to-day -day results on any individual comment or any individual disagreement. What I'm focused on is the marriage itself. It's pretty much what I just said. So for example, I'm outcome independent in my marriage. So if my wife says something that I know for a fact is wrong, she's wrong. She's saying something that is factually and logically wrong. What I used to do when I was a dumb shit, it was I would say, no, that is incorrect. What is really the case is A, B, C, D, E. How do you think she'd react to that? Well, and we'd have problems, of course. Today I go, okay. It's, it's a radical difference. And men, it's very hard for men to do this. Men have egos. We have fragile, touchy little baby egos. So it's very hard for a man to have his wife or girlfriend say something wrong and go, okay. Now, sometimes what I will do, we have a relationship now where I can do this. She'll say something wrong. If it has to do with me, I'll say, actually, no, da, 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 da. And she'll say, no, it's not. And I'll say, okay. And years ago, I told her, you know how sometimes I just go, okay, that means, you know, you're wrong, but I'm not gonna argue about it. It's no big deal. I don't care. And I, don't, and I love you and it doesn't matter. And so she knows what that means when I say, okay, but it still happens all the time. She'll say something and I'll say, well, actually, uh -uh. and she'll say, uh, uh no, but good, no, I'll say, okay. And now there's no argument, no drama. I don't care. I'm outcome independent. I don't care. I don't have to be right. So that's the best way I can say it in terms of a marriage or a serious relationship. I don't, I am outcome independent. I don't care about the results of being right. What I do care about is the marriage, which means I have to care about her feelings. And I'm an INTJ. I am a, I have a very robotic, low empathy personality. Matter of fact, I have to work on my empathy a little bit because I'm married now. And um, so I have to make sure that her feelings are a priority. Moreover, because my wife is the diametric opposite in terms of personality type on this stuff. She is not only very feminine and emotional, she is hyper feminine. She looks like a caricature of what a woman looks like. I mean, I've had pictures and videos of her before. So she's very feminine. So I have to, I have to acknowledge that. I have to acknowledge that she has needs, emotional needs that I don't have. And so I, because I care about the big picture, not the little picture, that's how I can be outcome independent and still care about the big picture. Because mm -hmm. outcome independent doesn't mean I don't care about my big goals. I care a lot about my big goals, but I don't care about all the details leading up to my big goals. Right. I really love the example you, sorry, go on. Well, the example I use, because sometimes that doesn't make sense to people. One of my mentors, Dan Kennedy, I'll, real fast, he said, I, when I get on a plane from Los Angeles to New York, my goal is to get to New York. I am positive and outcome dependent on that goal. I want to get to New York and I'm 100% sure I'll get there. I'm confident about the goal, but I am outcome independent about everything else. The plane's gonna be three hours late. I'm gonna sit next to two big fat guys and I'll be crushed in the seat. The food, if I eat it, it's gonna poison me and I'll throw up. The plane's gonna be really hot and I'll be sweating. It's gonna be terrible but I'll get there. So I'm outcome independent about all the details leading up to the objective, but I still want the objective. If that makes sense. That's the best way I can describe it. Yeah. That's the example I was actually going to cite. I really, you'll use that example oh, a lot. I really great. like that. Yeah. Perfect. Dan Kennedy, Perfect. highly recommended. And so I look at my marriage the same way. I look at my businesses the same way. So we've had a lot of hic I look at my five flags international plans the same way. I've had a lot of hiccups this year in 2020 because of coronavirus, because uh, on my, in my financial, excuse me, my international five flag stuff. Lots of little problems. And I go, okay, I don't care. We'll, we'll be six months late on this. We'll be a year late on that. I'm going to hit the objective. I'll be a little late. That's fine. We're just laughing. So you mentioned you're an INTJ, the Myers-Briggs type. Yeah. I am an INFJ, uh, which oh. probably, which explains why I'm about to ask you this question. Just looking sure. at my questions sure, here. Sure, Mr. Feeler. 
<laughs> Guilty as charged. On yeah. that note, I, I want to ask you about something that I haven't heard you speak a whole lot about. My, my feeling is that so many men and women, but I'm more focused on men in this particular regard, so many men experience love, if we can use that word, as a form of neediness. They tell themselves that they love their partner, but what they really are doing is just, they're really needy. They want certain things. This person gives me feelings. That's why I love them. It's, it's more of a needy kind of thirsty love that in my view, isn't truly love. Um, Agreed. What does the word love mean to you? And I guess I'm curious about how your idea of love and loving has changed over the years. And you can compare your marriages if you want. Um, but yeah, what does that word mean to you now? Very complicated. I will summarize as best I can. Love to me, among other things, means that I don't, it's the opposite of what you just said. I don't need this person, but I choose to be with this person. So in my scenario, that is literal. And it's going to sound like I'm bragging, but this is, these are the facts. And, and I've written about this before over the past 13 years. I, there's lots of documentation of, of things I've experienced the last 13 years about this. Um, prior to her, I for, for many years, when I was hardcore Black Dragon pickup artist type guy several years ago, I would average two marriage proposals per year from different women over a period of about at least five years. Um, these are women rating, ranging from 18-year-old girls to women who are about 30, 31 years old. And I turned them all down. Um, I could... If I want, if my objective was just to move in with someone and marry someone, I, I had my pick. It was, it was a pretty easy thing to do. I could have, and I could have done it many, many times, many years ago. I purposely waited. And so I am still in that condition where even when I was in, when I was dating Pink Firefly, I still had this in my head. I would like to settle down someday, but I am in no rush. I could wait till well into my fifties, even well into my sixties before that happens. I'm in no rush because I don't need it. Moreover, on top of that, I never need to live with anybody. I would be perfectly happy never living with a woman for the rest of my life. Now, ideally, I would like to. Back, this is what I, this was my conversation before I moved in with somebody. So I'd like to, but I don't need to. And um, I love Pink Firefly more than I've ever loved a woman in my entire life. It's almost on a spiritual level. Not almost, it is. But I don't need her. It's not something I need. And I've mentioned before, if there was a serious problem in our marriage, I love her more than life itself. She's wonderful. She's fantastic. She's a dream come true. And if we had regular drama in our marriage, she would be out of my house within 48 hours. I wouldn't like it, but I would do it because I don't need her. She's in my life because she makes me happier, but I don't need her. So to me, love means you are with that person because you choose to be with that person, not because you need that person, or in many cases, in terms of marriage, you feel like you must be with that person. Like women who stay with guys because of the money. Well, I have three kids, I got to pay for them, so I got to stay with this dumbass. Or men who stay married, or women who stay married for religious reasons. I need to stay married. Or what would my mom say if I got divorced? That's all need. And those are just vari variations of need. Um, I don't know if I answer your question. I've been loved four times in my life. This is the fourth time. And all four times are very different. And all four times were experienced on different levels. But with the exception of the first time, which when I was married in 25, the other three times I did not need the woman. That was not a need. It was something I felt not needed. So to me, that's the primary difference. There are other differences. We can do a whole thing on love you want. But that's the big difference. It's literally the opposite of what you just said. And by the way, what you just said is the norm for men. Women are actually much better at that than men. Yes, but that's yes. the norm for men, including very experienced, very high income, or very confident alpha males, guys who look great, including them. Matter of fact, I've talked about how alpha males often get one-itis. They get hit harder by one-itis than the typical beta guy, because the beta male lives in a constant, near constant state of one-itis. He's used to it. The big, tough alpha male guy, when he gets hit by one-itis, it's new and different. He's not used to it, and it really smacks him. So that's the norm, is men needing this woman. That's one-itis. One-itis is, I've said it before, it is the greatest threat to the modern man more than anything else in your life. Debt, debt would be number two, but oneitis is number one because oneitis is the only, the only major problem that is common that affects all the areas of your life. It screws up your financial life. It screws up your physical life. It screws up your relationship life. It screws up all these things. Most problems screw up one or two of these things, not everything, but yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I love to draw this distinction between wanting, desire, 
and neediness. And as yes. long as we're on the, you know, on this track of being politically incorrect, I think I need you often feels better to a man hearing that. Now, obviously, there's limits of that. You know, you don't want the woman hearing to that be from a woman. You mean hearing that from a woman? Yes. Um, sure. It sure. can scratch a, a certain niche. Yeah. A lot of that's biological. Sure. Absolutely. Whereas to a woman, she needs to feel wanted, not like you have no options, not like you're totally desperate for her, not like you need her to fill some hole in your life, no pun intended. Um, but really, like, I want this person. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of, I, I like to draw that distinction between wanting and actually needing someone. I mentioned in, in my main book, The Unchained Man, how a woman described this perfectly to me once. We were on a first date. I never, and we never actually, nothing ever happened to this woman, but she was a nice person. But she said, um, I am attracted to a man who has that twinkle in his eye, but I can't be that twinkle. Yeah. And I said, that is perfect. Say that perfect. again. That's exactly the way women think. Yes. Yeah. Right. If, if they need you, attraction drops. If a man needs a woman, every woman knows this, and, but men don't, the attraction that woman has for the man drops instantly. Absolutely. If, if it's very obvious the man doesn't need the woman, all of a sudden she likes him more. And in many cases, she doesn't even know why. Maybe he's not as good looking as she's used to. Maybe she, he's not the typical type that she likes, but she's attracted to him because she doesn't. He doesn't need her. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I'd like to ask you another question that, again, I haven't heard you speak a whole lot about this. And you tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that one of the common criticisms or critiques of open relationships, uh, heterosexual open relationships, is <laughs> that the man is having a grand old time, having lots of sex with different women, and the woman is acting like she's okay with it, but actually suffering silently. She's actually in a lot of pain. Um, and I'm sure there are certain examples of that going on, sure. but are. why might that be wrong? Like, can this work where, you know, a woman's totally happy and satisfied in this kind of relationship configuration? Two answers to that question. First of all, yes, I've seen relationships like that. And you don't want a long-term relationship with a woman who is not happy with the relationship parameters. Who is that unhappy? I'll mm -hmm. clarify that in a second. because That's the second part of the answer. So if I was with my wife, would I know if she was quietly miserable inside? Yes, she's my wife. It would be very obvious to me. If that were the case, this wouldn't work. We would have to end the relationship probably immediately. And that is something I pay attention to, and I teach this, when you're dating someone with, when a man is dating a woman with the intention of settling down with that woman, that's something you have to pay attention to. Is she saying, okay, fine, fuck other girls. And she's just miserable about it. If that's the case, she doesn't qualify for a long-term non-monogamous relationship or marriage with you. She's, that's not the type you want. And that's okay. That's fine. Most women are not going to qualify for relationships like this. And that's okay. It's fine. That's the first answer. The second answer is, and talk about politically incorrect. This is accurate. Women are never going to be hundred percent happy in any relationship. I've talked about this a lot. I've read a lot. Of, I've written, read, I've written a lot of articles about this. I've analyzed this a great deal. <sighs> How do I say this to not be an asshole? But I'll, I'll say it as best I can. Women do not want and are not even capable of absolute long-term consistent happiness. It's not the way they're wired. So what I mean is you could wave a magic wand and give a woman everything she wants. Give her the perfect body she wants. Give her the perfect man she wants. Give her the perfect life she wants. Give her the perfect, if she wants kids, the perfect kids she wants. Financially, where she lives, the house, the car spiritually, everything she wants. You can give her everything she wants. And within, within a matter of weeks, if not days, but certainly within weeks, she will find things to be unhappy about and complain about. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not women's fault. It's just the way they're designed. It's the way they're wired. And when you tell women this and they're away from all their girlfriends and, what, and the, the ego is out of the, out of the equation, they'll agree. They'll say, yeah. So if your goal as a man is to make sure my wife or my girlfriend is always happy and never unhappy, you will fail. That will never work. And there are a lot of men who try this. And matter of fact, um, as a man, you want your wife or girlfriend to be happy. And I sometimes fall back into this. I want her to be happy. I have to remind myself, this is she's a girl. She's never going to be completely happy. She'll have moments of happiness. She'll have times of happiness, eras of happiness, and then eras of anger, frustration, stress. Um, frustration is a big one with women. <laughs> 
So sometimes I will get women on my blogs who say things like, well, you can't do that because that won't make your wife happy. Nothing will make my wife long-term happy. Nothing will do that. If I was completely 100%, so to your point, a woman doesn't like it if her husband is out having sex with other women. If he stops having sex with women tomorrow morning, and that's no longer, they're now 100% monogamous and he doesn't cheat, it's guaranteed. Within a few weeks, she will bitch about something else. She will. That's just how women work. So one of my deals is if a woman is going to complain about her husband or boyfriend, you might as well be a man. You might as well do something that is not harmful to you in terms of long-term monogamy, in terms of long-term happiness. Go ahead and be non-monogamous. And, and if she's going to complain about something anyway, make it something where you can still live your life in a way that you want to live it. Instead of saying, I want to live this way, but I better live this way because my wife won't get mad at me. Your wife will get mad at you no matter what occasionally. So what you, what is under your control is um, how often she's unhappy. So my wife is very happy. She's happy the vast, vast majority of the time. Is she happy all the time? Like I am? No. And she never will be. She's a girl. I'm happy all the time. That's not possible for her. It's not possible. For a lot of men too. I don't want single women. Out. There are a lot of men like this too, who will never be long-term happy, but at least men have the option. If they make certain changes, they can achieve this level of long-term consistent happiness, which is what I talk about. It's an option for men. It really isn't an option for them. But it's those two answers. If mm. she's miserable, you shouldn't be in that relationship with her. You're harming her. I have seen one or two guys pull this off. Strong guys who keep their woman around. A lot of Hispanic guys do this. It's almost kind of the norm in their culture. They keep the woman around because they're strong guys. They want to take care of her. They go out and they cheat like dogs. She stays with them, but she's miserable. You can't have a relationship like that. You need to let her go. Let her go with a man who is going to be less of a problem. He'll still be a problem because she's a girl. So that's, those are the two answers. Yeah. The, what you just said reminds me of that chapter in um, The Way of the Superior Man, which you've probably read, David Data. Yes. When um, he talks about the masculine error of thinking being, you know, one day it'll finally be over. I can rest. I'll get right. the girl and I'll be happy. I'll marry the girl and she'll leave me alone. She'll finally stop complaining. I'll be happy. I'll make a certain amount of money. Then I'll be totally free and satisfied. I'll find a line of work that will, you know, scratch all of my, you know, spiritual needs and I'll feel like I'm contributing to the world. It never ends. And in a way, you know, there's, there's different ways you can look at that. I choose to see that as kind of a beautiful thing, as a kind of a motivating thing, whether mm -hmm. it's my woman in some ways inspiring me to man up and be better, make more money, um, you know, up my masculinity, whatever it is, you know, that you can perceive any of this stuff in any you know, number of ways. But this is such a common male mistake thing that just one day it'll be over. One day she'll leave me alone. One day she'll finally be happy and we'll never have drama again. No relationship works like that. Yeah. And that's a, and that's a big reason why men settle down. Mm. Once I settle down, thank God I'm done. No, you're not. You're just getting started. You started a whole new process, another process that will never end. Are you kidding? Yeah. Stupid. That's yeah. what you just described is why a lot of men settle down. Oh, I'm tired of dating. You're tired of dealing with women. So you're going to get married. Are you insane? No, that's not how this works. No, 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 no. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a fantasy for men that what you described is a fantasy. I do this, 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 I can be done. I can take a deep breath and get a, and relax on my lazy boy and just and live life and be okay. Correct. No, that's not how life works. Even when you retire, it's not how it works unless you want to die. They've done studies about how when, when men get to the point where they think they're all done, they die. We need mm -hmm. shit to do. We're, we're creatures of work. Correct. Absolutely right. Agree hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. The, the whole retirement discussion. I mean, I'm pretty young. I'm only 33. Um, so maybe you think about this more later in life, but the idea of retiring and just doing nothing all day, it just, yeah, it has no appeal to me. I, I, I want to do meaningful work up until like the last possible moment. Maybe I'll feel differently in 40, 50 years, but I hope I'll have something keeping me going even at that stage yeah, of life. I will never retire. I'll back off. Mm. I certainly will back off. I will never retire because um, I love working. Working is one of my greatest joys. I love working. Now, you and I are lucky. Lucky is not really a good word for it. You and I were smart enough to get involved in our own businesses and live our own lives. So you and I probably have a very different opinion about work than the guy who delivers pizzas. But even that guy can start his own business and start doing the work he likes eventually. So yes, correct. I, I will never retire. I'll back up. I will never retire. That's, that's not only a bad idea to me. It's, it's a horrific idea to have nothing to do. Jesus, God. And even if you put a gun to my head and made me retire, I would go work on other things. I'd write novels or something. I'd still involve myself in work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We talked about that in our first discussion. It was really Yeah, that's really right. Helpful. We did. That's right. Yeah.
A couple of quick questions before I let you go, Caleb. And once again, just to really appreciate you making the time and I always really sure. enjoy connecting with you. What sure. are you most, what are you most excited about heading into the new year? Moving out of the country, number one. Uh, number two, um, uh, my, I have three companies. I'm revamping. I'm, I'm shutting, I'm slowly shutting down one of them. I'm revamping a second one and I'm expanding the third one. Although the third one's pretty much all already expanded. The alpha male 2.0 company is pretty much already expanded. That's just going to be on autopilot. Um, I'm starting a new venture next year where I'm revamping my marketing company, A, because of COVID and B, because I'm going to be out of the country and my tax structures will be in a place where I can do certain things I wasn't able to do before easily. That's really exciting. Moving out of the country is really exciting. Um, I've made some breakthroughs in terms of my physical health this year, mostly mentally. So I'm excited to get the, keep, to keep working on those. December is a very hard month to lose weight. I'm all, I've almost given up for this December. God, it's hard, especially when your wife's birthday is in December. So it's a triple whammy of Thanksgiving, then wife birthday, then Christmas, then New Year. Oh, God. Anyway, so I, my favorite day of the year is January 2nd because that is a brand new year. I put that brand new calendar up on my wall of all these blank days up on my screen, all these blank days. Blank meaning they haven't occurred yet. And I can plan out the year. I've talked about, we were just talking this offline planning out that year and getting that getting stuff done in that year i'm i'm super super excited for a number of reasons it's actually getting difficult to sleep in a good way because i've been so excited lately about a number of things i'm excited about all kinds of stuff a lot of things excellent and last question what is the best piece of advice anyone's ever given you totally Mm. putting you on the spot yeah that's a hard one i've gotten a lot of good advice the best piece of advice First one that comes to mind. Well, the first thing that came to mind was not a piece of advice. It was a piece of wisdom. Um, If I thought about it, I could give you a better piece of advice. So this is, you could derive advice from this. Um, When I was a kid, when I was a young man, a wise older man who is long dead, a very wise guy, not my dad, but a very wise man I knew who was a, a mini mentor source. He told me, I think I've mentioned this once before on something, a podcast maybe. He said, Caleb, we have our problems. He's talking about consistent recurring problems now. We have our problems because we want them. That's the only reason we have them. So any recurring problem you have, you have it because you want it. And you're going to say, no, I don't. I hate it. It ruins my life. It's terrible. Nope. For some reason, somewhere in your dumb brain, somewhere in your lizard brain, your subconscious mind, or even your conscious mind, that problem is serving a purpose that you want. And so you could fight the problem all you want. What you really got to do is analyze why you want it. And that's the first thing that came to mind when you asked me that question, because that applies not only to individuals, it applies to relationships. It applies to people's lives. Going back to politics, politics, it applies to countries. It applies to cultures. If you have a country or a culture with a serious problem, that country or culture kind of wants that problem. And it doesn't really want to fix it. And that, so it, it applies in the micro and the macro. That's the, that's the first thing that came to mind when I, when you asked that question, I was racking my brain there. Yeah. Reminds me of uh, perhaps one of your more inflammatory podcasts. Everything in your life is your fault. Correct. So that was an indirect outgrowth of that because I believe that literally uh, there's rare 1% exceptions. Well, what about little kids who get cancer, Caleb? How many little kids do you know who have cancer? Thank you for proving my point. These are the 1% bizarre exceptions. Other than those bizarre exceptions, yes, every condition in your life right now, particularly if you're over the age of 18, now you can make the argument if you're 12 or 15 or eight, that's not true. But if you're over the age of 18, you're an adult. Every condition in your life is your fault, including the good ones, including Mm -hmm. the good stuff. So that's why it's a good deal. You can look at the good stuff you've done, the good stuff you're experiencing and say, I did that. Great. You can look at the bad stuff and say, this is my fault, which means I have the ability to fix it. Because if it wasn't your fault, you'd be fucked. Boy, would you be in big trouble? That would be horrific. If you told me that the problems I have are not my fault, I'd be screwed. That would be the most horrible horror movie I've ever seen in my life. I want the problems in my life to be my fault. Then I have at least some ability to fix them or at least alleviate them. So that's, people think that's bad news. Yeah, I got a lot of angry people when I said that. I still do. That's good news. That's not bad news. You can fix it. Now we can discuss how hard it is to fix it. That's a separate conversation. Yeah, it can be really hard, but it's still your fault, which means you can fix it. Yeah, that's good news. Yes. Right. 
Well, Caleb, always an absolute pleasure talking to you. Where's the best place people can find you online? CalebJones.com, C-A-L-E-B as in boy, because I know it's a weird name for some people, Jones.com. That's, I have a lot of websites, but that's kind of where you get started. That's everything there. Yeah. Great. Fantastic. Well, Caleb, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and thanks again for making time for me. I really appreciate it. You too. No problem. Had fun. hope you enjoyed today's episode of Humans in Love. If you'd like to learn more about my guests, my work, or you'd like to listen to back episodes of the podcast, please visit humansinlove.com. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Humans in Love using your podcast app of choice. If you're a fan of Humans in Love and you'd like to help keep the show going and help me spread the word, please take 30 seconds out of your day to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Before I let you go, remember that life is short, so let's make it count. And thank you, as always, for your listenership and support. I'll talk to you again very soon.